Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth. I'm going to kick things off like I do these days by reading some of my favorite recent reviews on Apple Podcasts. I want to remind everybody to please rate, review the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, but specifically on Apple because it really helps the podcast and the algorithm. So some of you have been doing that and I really appreciate it. And so here are some of my faves from the last week. This is from 0000 Sarah 0000. DJ Louie is such a knowledgeable and passionate host, and it's hard not to love this podcast. I love the deep dives into artists big and small, and I feel much smarter about music and have so much fun listening. Louie is so funny, and you can tell so much time and effort goes into producing the show. Pop Pantheon is a freaking delight. That is so sweet, and I thank you so much for leaving such a lovely review. Next is from Toy Soldier Fashion Blogger. You're an excellent podcast host and so knowledgeable. Please do a Britney deep dive. I think she's tier one, as you cannot tell the story of contemporary pop music without her, and she is not a cipher. She is where she is because of who she is, where many tried and failed. Couldn't agree more about your assessment, and the day will come when we do do that Britney episode. I know everybody wants that one which is why I can't just give away all the goodies right away. And finally, I just want to read this one from R.M. Hannon, who says, I'm a veteran fan of many music podcasts, including Switched on Pop and Song Exploder. I cannot stress enough how much this podcast has changed the game for me. The format, level of research, blah, blah, blah. General great vibes. Make it a must listen for any pop fan. That is such sweet company. I'm big fans of both those shows. So thank you all for leaving reviews. I really appreciate that. I also wanted to throw out there, this is a random new thing that I might just start throwing in from time to time, is that as many of you might glean from my name, I'm a DJ and I am available for parties. If you are getting married or you have some event coming up that you are looking for a DJ for, I am a veteran of 15 years. My musical style is very much in the vein of this podcast. I'm really into pop through history, through genre, whatever. So, you know, if you're looking for a DJ, I can also travel. I just wanted to put that out there because I am available for that. So keep me in mind for your next event. Next up, I wanted to make sure that I talk about the contest yet again. We're doing a contest where if you share Pop Pantheon or your favorite episode of Pop Pantheon on Twitter or Instagram and you tag the podcast, you will be automatically entered in a contest where one winner will get to pick an episode that we fast track on the show. So pick your favorite episode, share it, share a link, share an endorsement of the show, tag Pop Pantheon pod on either format and you'll be entered in that context. Again, follow us on social media, Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at DJ L O U I E X I V on both of those channels. Get in the Discord. Oh my God, it's so fun. There's people in there all day just chattering away about everything. I love it. I'm in there popping in from time to time. Definitely recommend you get in there. The link for that is in the bio on social media of both myself and Pop Pantheon Pod, and also will be in the show notes of this episode, as will the links to Spotify playlists that are attached to each episode. There's an essential Spotify playlist for every episode that we do, including last week's TRL episode, which I forgot to mention on air, so I'm actually going to put in the show notes of this episode. It's so fun. It's got like Samantha Mumba and Sum 41 and Corn and Britney. It's so much fun. I haven't stopped listening to it since it came out. So check that out. And I want to get into this week's episode. And I'm going to do so by noting that we recorded this mere days before superstar Harry Styles brought out this week's subject as his special guest at Coachella, which I think only speaks to Pop Pantheon's prescience and also this person's continued influence on popular music. So here it is, the queen of country pop, Pop Pantheon, Shania Twain. (laughs) 
Let's go, girls. Okay, so a little about me. I grew up in New York, which, while the hub of a lot of interesting music, was certainly not a part of the U.S. where country music thrived. In fact, when I was prepping for this episode, I was trying to put myself in my child's shoes and remember if I was actively aware of any country artists as a kid. I couldn't think of many, but Shania Twain was not like other country artists. From the late 90s to the early 2000s, during her imperial phase, I just figured Shania was one of the pop girlies like Mariah or the Spice Girls, albeit with a little more banjo in the mix. But I was obsessed with her, from the stomping crystalline production to the massive empowering feel-good choruses about kicking childish men to the curb and feeling great about being a woman even though I was a 10-year-old boy to her insanely campy outfits in music videos. I share all of this only to say that unbeknownst to me, who was just appreciating all of this purely at face value, Shania Twain had low-key done the unthinkable in her career to that point in pop history. She managed to make country music that was also centrist pop music, and in the process, turned herself into a capital P pop star in a way that very few country artists had done before her. As I've come to discover later, her musical and presentational innovations, her ability to bridge the worlds of Nashville and mainstream pop, were nothing short of seismic, and looking back, made Shania Twain one of the most singular pop figures of the last few decades. Shania Twain's status as the ultimate Nashville outsider turned game changer began at birth because unlike the majority of country superstars in the genre's history, she was actually born in 1965 in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. Shania's early years were spent, along with her siblings, in abject poverty, with her parents barely making ends meet and a home life rife with domestic abuse. Like the story goes for so many future pop icons, singing and writing songs became an escape for Shania, and spotting her talent from an early age, her mother Sharon began getting her daughter work at local bars where she would perform at the end of the night for 20 bucks before she'd even turned 10 years old. Shania was not necessarily naturally drawn to stardom. She suffered from stage fright beginning with these early gigs all the way through her massive pop success, but pushed through in order to help support her family. After graduating high school, Shania became the front woman of a number of Canadian touring bands before tragedy struck in 1987 when both of her parents were killed in a car accident. Now saddled with raising her younger siblings, Shania moved back home and got a job as the resident entertainer at a local resort where she'd sing covers of a diverse array of songs like Hearts Barracuda and Willie Nelson's Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain. There, she honed her passionate, malleable vocal styling and effervescent, good-natured girl-next-door persona. She also assembled the demo tape that would eventually lead to her record deal with Mercury Nashville. Shania left Canada for Nashville and, in 1993, released her self-titled debut album. At the time, Nashville was not a particularly hospitable place for new women artists, and Shania Twain, which found Shania being serviced B and C list songs written by some of the town's most tried and true songwriters, was essentially nondescript middle of the road radio country. While it produced some middling hits like What Made You Say That, the album essentially stiffed and it seemed Shania's career might be over before it had even started. It's too late now, I won't let you take it back. 
Everything changed, though, when later in 1993, super producer Mutt Lang, famous for creating 80s arena rock smashes like ACDC's Back in Black and Def Leppard's Pour Some Sugar on Me, happened to hear a couple of Shania's songs and reached out about working with her on new music. The two clicked instantly, both professionally and very soon after that personally, almost immediately beginning work on new music unbeknownst to Shania's label and also getting married six months later. The music they created together for her second album, 1995's The Woman in Me, was a far cry from the boilerplate country tunes of her debut. This music was ambitious and had moxie, fusing Mutt's past work creating arena-filling anthems marked by massive stomping percussion, guitar licks, and huge shadow-long choruses, the pair's knack for clever song concepts and insanely catchy hooks, just a twinge of fiddle and banjo to appease the Nashville purists, and Shania's on-record preternatural self-confidence, every girl appeal, and elastic, pristine vocals. At first, said purists, as personified by Shania's label, winced at music they thought was straying too far from the core values of the town's traditional musical aesthetics, and what may have been perceived as Shania and Mutt's uppity aspirations with an eye on transcending the country marketplace. The first single they released from the album was one of the more traditional country-sounding songs Shania and Mutt had produced for the record. Whose bed have your boots been under? It peaked at number 11 on the U.S. country charts and instantly made Shania a new force in Nashville. But it was the second single that truly solidified the pair's masterful innovations and launched Shania into the country stratosphere. Any Man of Mine contains bare-bones, queen-esque stomp and clap verses, then morphs into a double-time, fiddle-laden barn burner of a chorus before ending with a Blondie-esque white girl rap on the outro. It was a genre mashup unlike anything heard on country radio before, especially from a woman, and it was a sensation hitting number one on the U.S. country charts and sending the woman in me on a run of six more country music smashes and on a path to eventually selling over 20 million copies worldwide. I wanna hear him say It wasn't just the clever genre play and A-plus production and songwriting that made The Woman in Me such a phenomenon. It was also Shania's playful presentation style and use of music videos that made her an immediate hero amongst young women country fans, but also anathema to Nashville traditionalists, exposing her midriff in numerous music videos and updating some of the campier sartorial elements of country's past caused her to be derided by the establishment, but also helped her register outside of the music town, making her more than just a country star, but also a pop icon conversant with other mainstream stars of the time, like Janet Jackson, who were pushing boundaries for the ways women could express sexuality both in their music and visually. Following The Woman in Me's blockbuster success, Shania and Mutt got to work on the follow-up, which, banking on the creative freedom that record had afforded them, would be even more ambitious, building on the previous albums of genre-melting formula to create music that reached even further outside of traditional country music's boundaries and directly towards pop radio. This work would eventually comprise Shania's third album, 1997's Come On Over, which went on to become the best-selling studio album ever by a female artist and stands to this day as the ninth biggest selling album worldwide in history. Come on over's Count 
12 singles are essentially a couple years worth of both country and pop hits contained on a single track listing. There were of course the more traditional country hits like Don't Be Stupid You Know I Love You and Love Gets Me Every Time, but there were also giant sweeping pop ballads like mid-90s classics You're Still the One and From This Moment On, both of which went top five on the Billboard Hot 100. And of course, there's the album's two most iconic singles. It's opening track, Man, I Feel Like a Woman, a Southern rock-influenced pop anthem about the giddy joys of going out and having some fun as a woman free of the male gaze, contains an instantly recognizable synthetic guitar riff, Shania's now signature spoken word asides, and is immortalized by its iconic music video, one of the late 90s most memorable, an inversion of Robert Palmer's Simply Irresistible, which finds Shania in a sexy tuxedo while a bunch of dead-eyed male models play instruments behind her. And the top 10 smash, That Don't Impress Me Much, a strident country dance pop classic 90s feminist anthem about gleefully leaving mediocre men in the dust, which produced yet another classic music video in which Shania struts through the desert in a drag-inspired midriff-bearing leopard print outfit complete with a hood. These two singles completely transcend the idea of Shania being a country artist. They are simply two of the most enduring pop classics of the decade. Okay, so you got a car. That don't impress me much. You simply don't get records like Come On Over anymore, an album powered by both a fully functioning monoculture and a soon-to-crash peak of album consumption. The record spun off singles for nearly three years following its release, and in 1998 and 99, Shania went on an 165-date arena tour supporting the record. Burnt out and exhausted, she took a few years off before returning with 2002's Up! Again, expanding on the now tried-and-true Mutt and Shania pop country formula, Up! drove even further towards crystalline pop, leading the album to be released in three different formats, pop, country, and international, each of which tweaked the production to suit various markets, and genre experimentation into R&B, pure pop, and even reggae, some of which paid off more than others. The album produced a series of hits like I'm Gonna Get You Good and the title track and went diamond in the United States. But in a strange turn of events, this would be the last Shania album for nearly 15 years. Following up and in desperate need of a break, Shania and Mutt retreated to their home in Switzerland to regroup and raise a family. But things quickly devolved in the ensuing years, with a series of events from Shania contracting Lyme disease and a pretty insane breakup from Mutt in which he cheated on her with her best friend and then she married the husband of said best friend, caused her to lose both her voice and her confidence as a performer. After a successful Vegas residency in the mid-2010s, Shania only returned to releasing music in 2017 with her record Now. But the short-livedness of her hit streak only speaks to her outsized influence on pop. Shania Twain has sold 34 million records in the U.S. alone, making her the top-selling female country artist of all time and the 26th best-selling artist overall. She is the only female in history to have three consecutive albums certified diamond in the U.S. She has sold over 100 million records worldwide, making her one of the best-selling artists in music history. She has 18 country top tens and six number ones, as well as three top tens on the Hot 100. She's received five Grammy Awards, a World Music Award, and 27 BMI songs. Songwriter Awards. She is known as the queen of country pop, and her rule-breaking, genre-busting country music and theatrical, pop-oriented presentation is widely noted as having paved the way for future superstars, most notably all of y'all's favorite, Taylor Swift. Here with me on the podcast to discuss country pop's crossover queen is executive editor of Dwell. 
Kate Drees. Okay, so I am here with executive editor at Dwell and my dear personal friend, Kate Drees. Kate, welcome to Pop Pantheon. Thank you so much. I am truly ecstatic to be here. I'm excited to have you because nobody could come on here, I don't think, and educate us more about Miss Shania Twain than you could. <laughs> I mean, you could get her on the show. That would certainly be better. But, you know, we'll I don't me. think so. I don't think so because I don't think Shania Twain would have your level of editorial objective excellence. An obsession? Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, people ask me all the time, like, would you ever have artists themselves on the show? And I'm like, no, I don't think artists can talk about themselves or other artists, partic- for the most part, particularly well. Yeah, I mean, the amount of perspective you'd be able to have on yourself is like probably insurmountable, especially for someone who's insanely famous and like probably a narcissist. <laughs> There's certain ones I could think of, actually. Someone said, like, Charlie XCX could come on here and probably, like, actually do this. Well, not about herself, but about somebody right, else. Talk about her new shirt. <laughs> that aside. <laughs> that aside. So anyway, I'm so psyched to have you here because Shania is such a huge artist, I think, that we both grew up with. She was a towering cultural figure. She's such an integral part of the union of country and pop, which has come to fruition, I think, in many huge superstars that have come after her, I think most notably Taylor Swift, and I'm sure we're going to talk about her down the road a little bit. I'm, you know, not a huge country person, so when I was growing up, Shania Twain was probably, like, the only active country artist that I have any passing awareness of merely because she was so incredible at fusing the world of sort of mainstream MTV, VH1, pop stardom of that period and country. So I'm so excited to learn a little bit from you and to have this discussion with you to sort of figure out exactly like how she did that, what her innovations were that allowed her to be one of the few artists that like truly codes as a country star that also managed to be like a fully mainstream successful pop star of that particular era. Yeah, it's so interesting that you say that because I think your experience is a really common one. And I had like completely the opposite, which is I grew up in a household where like pop country was very much kind of frowned upon and classic country was all we listened to. And so Shania was my gateway drug into pop country. <laughs> and like once I got, of course, come on over, which we'll talk about, I was just like, oh my God, <laughs> like this is yeah. crazy. Like this is so yeah. good. But my whole history before that was very much rooted in like George Jones, Bonnie Ray kind of the old school like classic vibes. Yeah, and I'm excited to get in with you a little bit about just Nashville culture in general because it's something I, again, I only have like a passing understanding of, but I know it's a very insular world. I know it's a world with a lot of rules and sort of ingrained customs and culture that are both maybe have value on some level, but also are incredibly restrictive, sexist, racist, all kinds of things like that. And I know Shania's trajectory as a star gets into so many of those debates. And she was, I think she had a very terse relationship with Nashville, especially because she was from Canada. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Just like add her to the list of our famous cultural icons that are not actually from here. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think it's funny that we brought up Taylor Swift too, who's like obviously like one of Shania's like biggest progeny. Also another person that came up in country, but is from Pennsylvania. Like these, these yeah. sort of like interlopers that I think will help us get into a discussion about the way that Nashville functions because country music is the biggest genre in the country kind of. Yeah. And yet it feels like a sort of hermetically sealed bubble that Shania yeah. Twain was one of the few people that has really like effectively burst that bubble. Totally. I also am really intrigued by her story, having had a chance to get into it and preparing for this, in just how humongous her impact was in such a short amount of time. I mean, Shania Twain effectively released technically four albums, but really only three of any like consequence. And yet she feels absolutely one of the most like superlative pop figures of the late 90s and early 2000s, which is an incredible feat. I'm so curious about how you think she was able to achieve that so fast. Yeah, I know. When I first saw her perform several years ago and I wrote about it for Jezebel where I was working at the time and it was the first time in my professional life that I had really dug into her story other than the music that I knew and loved and just going through her discography I was I guess I knew how many records she'd released because they were the ones I listened to but I had never really thought about how few records she released and how outsized her impact has been considering it's a pretty short list. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, you don't get records like Come On Over very often in pop history where there were literally 12 singles released from this album. Like, it was just mind-boggling going back and listening to that album and being like, holy shit, this is literally like country and pop radio for like an entire period of two years like contained in one track listing. Like, I know, I was insane. thinking like it really puts Katy Perry to shame, you know? <laughs> it's like... It, a hundred million percent. <laughs> and also just the vectors that it hits, it so cannily incorporates so many different genres. And what's funny to me, and like I'll be interested to hear your take on it coming from the opposite angle. I know that Nashville purists and country artists view that record as essentially like a pop record that throws a fiddle in the mix to appease the purists or whatever. But I still think of her as country, even though she is such a huge pop star. It's just a fascinating to see an artist that can be viewed through so many different lenses depending on the angle that you're looking at it from. And that I think just speaks to how cannily she played this because she really was able to be lots of different things to lots of different people. Yeah, just having read her memoir, I mean, she had a really crazy and dramatic and sad upbringing. And I think she is, for lack of a better word, a survivor. She just kind of mm. like gets it done. I think her yeah. whole life strategy is, I just got to keep going. Like, I'm just going to keep mm. doing it. When I was really thinking before we were meeting today, I was like, I think she's like lightning in a bottle. Like, I don't think anyone could have done what she did. <laughs> like, I really no. think she's like unique in all ways. For sure. And there is almost like a relentless upbeatness to her music and a yeah. broadness to it. And I was very interested diving into it. And obviously we're going to parse this all apart in detail, but she really took that seriously. Like, I think she took her role as like making pop music very seriously. Like she didn't really approach most of those giant records from this perspective that many modern pop stars do about sort of like, how do I make this exceedingly personal? It all Mm -hmm. was really about a broad message, a broad feeling, a broad persona that could be connected to by the most possible people. She was kind of nakedly ambitious about that in a way that I really respect. And I think clearly paid off in how successful she was. 
Yeah, and I think it speaks to the fact of, like, she's an everywoman. Yeah. She doesn't think of herself as special in a weird way. Mm. Like, she obviously knows she's talented and smart, but she really leans into that thing of, like, universality with her music. She really totally. thinks of it as a connector. She thinks her audience is there with her. She doesn't really think of herself, at least the way she talks about herself, as particularly unique, which I think is rare, right? Because when we think of pop stars, we think of people who are, it's just me. I'm out here. I'm number one. No one one could be me and yeah. she doesn't really think about herself that way yeah that's really really fascinating i really find that refreshing in the context of the egotistical performatively personal vibe that pop nowadays often operates in there's something beautiful about celebrating pop as something broad and universal like it's great when a great artist comes along and can make really personal music but there's something so beautiful about celebrating pop's ability to connect to the most people and to allow the most people to tack on their own personal experiences to it and i know she's talked a lot about that she wanted to make songs that people could see themselves in and the most amount of people could see themselves in and great pop music has done that historically over time and she's just a wonderful practitioner of that and yet she looks like fucking cindy crawford and she has so much fucking charisma and star quality it was such a fucking joy to get to go back and watch all the music videos i mean she's just i know absolutely videos. effervescent and you're magnetized to her you can't take your eyes off of her Holy i know it's, it's so crazy it's like she has this quality of she's the girl next door but like that's not what the girl next door looks like <laughs> but you still kind of believe that she is she's totally. such a like one of a kind because it's just like who is like that no one you know no Despite what she might have posited to us about not being special, right. she was quite special and she is quite special. And yeah. I'm very excited to get into exactly why that was. So I'd like to take us back. This is our first episode where we're really covering country in any sort of meaningful way. So I would like to talk a little bit with you about the traditional relationship between mainstream popular music in America and Nashville and country. And yeah. maybe just start by sort of asking who prior to Shania are important figures that we should know, whatever preceding decades you want to talk about this in, that bridged this gap, that were country stars that coded as country, that began in country perhaps, but also were able to access the adjacent but separate world of mainstream American pop music. Yeah, I mean, thinking about this, it is hard because she kind of did something that other people did not do on the scale she did it on. Sure. I would say Dolly Parton is maybe the closest where Dolly really became and is still a pop culture icon, a figure far past her music. I would say now there's a whole generation of people who probably don't even really know her music. They just know Dolly is this like figure, mm, totally. especially when it comes to aesthetics and charity work and Dollywood, all that stuff. But I think what's really interesting about Shania that really sets up her career is sure, she grew up listening to classic country artists and folk music, but she also listened to everything. She listened to pop, she listened to rock. She was not stuck in one genre and that set the stage for her to be able to do what she did. She's talked about the artists that she identifies with the most as someone like Elvis, who like was never a country star, but right. those early tracks really have the twang, comes mm. out of that culture. Mm. 
especially when he gets to Vegas, the shiny zoot suit energy. Like, <laughs> Shania definitely dresses like that. Dolly mm-hmm. definitely dressed like that. Like, that comes out of a specific country aesthetic. Obviously, closer to when you get to her career, Garth Brooks is the male equivalent, just in the sense of someone who is able to take country, kind of crossover. So, you know, I think you could have a whole other conversation about Garth's attempts to do that that have failed, aka like Chris Gaines. Chris Gaines. (laughs) In terms of like a dolly, let's just take her as an example. What allowed her to breach the chrysalis of Nashville? What were the ingredients in a dolly, for instance, that allowed that crossover to happen? Because Dolly also, I think more than Shania, was able to maintain her cred within Nashville. That was something that I think Shania, I don't want to say she struggled with it because maybe she didn't give a fuck. But like, what do you think were the facets either in the music itself or in the way she presented or marketed her career that allowed Dolly to be such a trailblazer in that sense? Nashville is a songwriter's town. The songwriting is at its core, like the essence of what happens there. And even though obviously people are trading songs and moving them back and forth as much as happens in pop music, in fact, you could probably argue the original sort of farm system happened there. That I think is where a lot of the cred comes. Like that's where the Mm -hmm. respect comes. And Dolly always did that. It's aesthetic. Some of it is like, you really gotta be flashy Mm-hmm. And she did TV, which is huge. Right. That's kind of the way you cross over. And I think we see parallels in that with Shania's use of music videos. You need to have a platform that's not just the song, right? You got to start iterating on different levels mm. in order to move out of just country radio, which will kind of trap you. Like it'll be the only thing you're known for. And then you never leave that circle if you don't start trying to do other things. Mm-hmm. But it's that glitzy image, that sort of yeah. campy aesthetic, it feels kind of key because Shania did this in her own way. She's not camp on the level of a dolly, but Shania's image and the way she marketed herself and the way she situated herself in pop culture feels like absolutely critical. And obviously, as you mentioned earlier, it's like the image of Dolly Parton is almost seared more into many people's minds than her music in a lot yeah. of senses, especially now. Yeah, I mean, at this point, definitely, obviously that's like blasphemy to a lot of people. But then also like, <laughs> you know, with her, she was like, I want to be in movies. She's a nine to right. five. That's a huge movie. That's one of the best movies of all time. She really like made her stamp as an actress. And so once you have that like crossover appeal, I think it leverages you out of a genre that can be a little insular or at least used to be more insular. And how does Nashville take that? When an artist that they see as their own or who starts out using the Nashville system to become successful, how does Nashville respond to an artist that has broader ambitions? It's so interesting to think about this because I think the answer now is very different than it was even a few years ago. I mean, you look at the Taylor Swift dynamic with Nashville where she sort of shunned it a little bit but she's so famous that they're like okay well we need you a little bit but we don't need you and I think that she probably feels that way too and then if you look at the conversation around Lil Nas X that entire thing was obviously wildly racist and also really spoke to what is insider versus outsider in that 
he became incredibly famous. And now all these country stars are like, wait a second, we need to do what he's doing to yeah. like, be with it. So I think Nashville as a whole has like a pretty different relationship to insider outsider than they did when Dolly was coming up, when Shania was right. coming up. It's still like fraught and tense, right. but some of the walls have collapsed a little bit. But in their days, each respectively, it was not received well, is what you're sort of insinuating. It's just, it was hard to do. I think you had to play by certain rules. It was very pay your dues. And I think there was a real mistrust of anyone who wanted to do something outside of the community, outside of the sound, which honestly sounds like ridiculous to say out loud. I I was going to ask why. (laughs) Why do you think it had that culture? I mean, I think sexism, racism, all of these aspects are the core of the play here. But country is allegedly about authenticity, right? At its core, there's this conceit of this music is American music. This is the most American music, which is not true, but like whatever. (laughs) And if you have gatekeepers that have been brought up in that ethos, and then they bring a new generation up in that ethos, and then it just builds and builds. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are like, we make a lot of money doing it this way we gotta keep doing it this way like i think at the end of the day that is a lot of what it comes down to is there's fear of taking risks in a way that for a long time was encouraged more in other genres Mm. to some degree like obviously there's fear there in other genres as well but you know it's a little bit like looking at these artists who've been able to do something different people approach them and are a little bit like if it's not broke let's not fix it you know right and i think pop as a term is so elastic i think we all understand that pop is a constantly mutating concept that doesn't have necessarily deeply ingrained core values because it's broad and it is meant to just encompass like what is popular at a certain time. It's like hard to say even exactly what it is. But obviously the parallel that so many people draw is hip hop, the other extremely meaningful American art form that has emerged. These are both or have in the past been very sealed worlds with very stringent values of authenticity. And I do think it's interesting to think about the fact that there's this impetus within that world to like sort of protect those values and protect that realness. And yet at the same time, as you said, it starts to cross over into something that feels extremely confining, restrictive, and as you said, racist, sexist, and retrograde. So this is obviously a great jumping off point to talk about someone who is just inherently an outsider due to the fact that she is not even an American by birth. Miss Shania Twain. So let's rewind a bit and talk about Shania. So first, can you just provide a little bit of light bio? Like, who is Shania Twain? Where did she grow up? And like, what is her childhood like? And how does she begin making music, singing, writing, all of that kind of stuff? So Shania grew up very small town, Canada. Her mom raised her her whole life and her biological father left when she was very young. And so she considers her dad to be her stepfather. And her mom was white, her stepfather is Native American. And that is a really fascinating through line through her early childhood and even to this day, where a lot of her life was spent in this mixed family, this mixed Mm. community. And eventually, like, I mean, there's competing stories about where her name came from. (laughs) But she says in her book that she took it from a co-worker of hers who had a similar one parent was Native American, one parent was white background. Mm. Because her actual name is Eileen, which is, you know, as we know, probably less of a pop star name than Shania. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'd like someone to give it a whirl. Can you become a global sensation with the name Eileen? Uh, I don't know. You don't and see Shania it. And Shania is like perfect, right? Because it's like, you can just call her Shania. She doesn't have to have two names. It's incredible. And also it rolls right off the tongue. It's really a beautiful name. Yeah. But you know, I think the thing that pretty much set her trajectory is it was a very abusive, pretty poor family. Her entire childhood, they're moving houses all the time. She has several siblings. They're sharing tiny spaces. She really had a pretty sad childhood that I think explains a lot of her endless cheeriness to this day to some degree where she's like, you just have to keep going. Like you just have to survive. And through this experience, I think pretty early her mom IDs that she has this pretty incredible voice. She's like a gifted musician. And her mom is kind of like, you are going to be my shining star like you are gonna be our ticket out of here essentially and not in the Uh way where she expected her to like save the family though i'm sure that was some of it Uh but i think the energy at least the way shania talks about it is like her mother is an abused wife they have very little money and she's like living what she couldn't have through her daughter a little bit right but that's like the classic stage yes exactly it comes from both a loving and a toxic right So yeah, she has a really fascinating background where, like a lot of artists, music is a real salvation to her, but she's not the one who wants to be a star. She is not talking about it like, I need to be famous. She is talking about it like, my mom wants me to be famous. My mom thinks I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to do what my mother could never do. And I think that thread really carries through her whole life where she says repeatedly that she would have been happy being a backup singer. She had to learn to be the star, which is nuts it's like so rare my mind is blown because i'm just she's such a superstar to me it's just she has the kind of star quality that you really can't teach somebody so that is just so fascinating and then the mom put her in bars like when she was eight years old nine ten years old right and she'd get on the bar and sing right isn't that kind of what happened it's wild she was literally an eight-year-old performing in these like backcountry bars she talks about going on after strippers it's like a specific time (laughs) very interesting say do you have a sense from her bio or whatever of like what kind of songs she's singing in these situations are they country songs some country some rock a lot of folk mm. again this is the point where we see her she's genreless like she right. will listen to anything she will play anything the music that she is interested in completely runs the gamut she loves van halen like <laughs> that track Like she talks about like the Beach Boys. God only knows what I'd be without you. The Shondells. Loving Karen Carpenter. Loves the Bee Gees. She talks a lot about how much she loves harmony, which I think, again, really speaks to her desire to, like, at least early on, not be center stage, be in the background. She has, like, terrible stage fright at first. Or actually, I think to this day. You mean at first sometimes. when she was eight years old in a bar? Yeah, right. She's just shoved on stage. <laughs> but yeah, she really gravitates towards 
community, singing mm. together. She loves those sounds. All right. So Shania has this experience growing up, as you said, in extreme poverty. Her mother stage moms her on some level into performing in these bars. So Shania has this really sort of tragic part of her bio where both her parents die in a car accident at a certain point, right? Yeah, so after her parents died, she has to go back home. All of a sudden, she has several siblings to take care of who are like in their teens, but not out of school, which is truly crazy. I mean, she has resentments through the book. Like she's not a saint, but like, and through her story. But <laughs> How like, could you fucking not? Like, you not, I right? love everything you're talking about because there is, as we've talked about already, this relentless, upbeat positivity to her peak era music. And it's fascinating to think of that as a survival technique or something like that. Yeah, it's absolutely survival. But yeah, at this point, I mean, again, like some of this stuff is just, I don't even know how this happened, but she says it did, so we have to believe it. Um, <laughs> but she ends up getting a job basically working at a resort as their performer. And she gets this job because she's like, okay, I can still live with my siblings. They can graduate from high school. Then I can be free of this, but I'll be nearby. I'll have a steady paycheck and I'll be able to provide for them. And that's where she's essentially, for lack of a better word, discovered. So this woman, Mary Bailey, who is like a old friend of her mother's, becomes her first manager and knows this attorney in Nashville and convinces him to come to Canada and see her perform there. And he sees her perform there and he's like, okay, you should get a record deal. Which is crazy. What do you think he sees in her? Like, if we were just going to start to sort of track what the star quality is, what the vocal quality is, how do you how do you describe that? Like, what do you think she had on display there, even in that early era, that could help us understand why she was such a shining star? Her voice is, I think, fascinating. The different qualities. She has this talky, sing-songy mm-hmm. thing that she does. There's just levels, right? Like, there's just a lot of stuff going on. And Mm -hmm. I think, like, that is inherently not something you hear all the time. Like, you got the belters and you got the people who are Mm. in the low range. And Mm. she kind of is chatting with you as she's singing. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's that thing you talked about, that sort of authenticity, every girl vibe that she has is portrayed in the way that she sings. And this is something that will be borne out throughout her big hits. It's like, as you mentioned, she has a lot of textures that she can engage with with her voice. And it often feels like she's kind of just conversing with you when she's singing, which is, it seems easy. She makes it seem easy. The great stars who are able to do this make this seem easy, but it is really a unique talent to be able to feel like someone is just kind of speaking to you. And I feel like that paired with the fact that she actually has a pretty powerful virtuosic singing voice is a really unique combination. Yeah. And, you know, I think also what sets her apart as well for Nashville is that she writes her own music and she Mm. has been writing her own songs since she was, again, like eight years old. So 
there's like a bang for your buck there in terms of what you're getting. You have this beautiful woman who has, even if it was forced upon her, huge stage charisma, even if it took her a decade to get there, like she's been practicing for a long time (laughs) and she writes her own songs and they're like pretty good. So she gets this record deal with Mercury Nashville and they set about making her debut album. Yeah. Now... This record doesn't sound very much like the Shania Twain that we come to know in my personal experience of listening to it. Can you talk a little bit about the debut album, Shania Twain? What is this music? What does it sound like? How does it present Shania? Let's start with that. So she says that, and this makes perfect sense, they like her songwriting. They don't think she's there yet. They don't trust a nobody from Canada yeah. to like write a whole album by herself. Especially given, as you were pointing out earlier, that Nashville is like this factory of songwriting where there's a real rigid system of go-to, tried and true studio people that are there to craft your sound to this present day. She talks about going and thinking Music Row is actually kind of comfy and cozy for those who aren't familiar. The original Music Row is like all these little houses just on one street and it doesn't look like this big factory. But then you walk into yeah. these buildings, you just got an hour with someone you just met and you got to write a song. Like it's, <laughs> It is kind of a factory. So she likes the aesthetic and I think the overall small time vibe, but that relationship, she does not like. She's like, how am I supposed to sit down with someone I don't know and write right. ahead? Like, Right. I don't get it. Again, she's also not a star yet, so she gets, quote-unquote, the bottom of the picks of songs. Yeah. So they basically give her songs to choose, and she has to choose the best ones, and she describes yeah. them as formulaic, cookie-cutter. What made you say that? Was it the moonlight? Was it the starlight? Right? What made you say that? You've been listening to your heart. It's too late now. You don't She's spoken since very negatively about this album. She does not perform it live. She does not consider this her record. I wrote chintzy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She described it as like felt like making jingles, like commercial jingles Mm -hmm. than like making a record. And it's interesting because I actually think listening to it, it's serviceable. Like there's nothing. Oh, for sure. You'd never listen to it and be like, this sucks. The personality is evident. She is commanding. The minute that first song started, I was like... Even though this music doesn't like do that much for me as songs, I was just completely taken with her charm. Yeah. So charming. And as you said, the voice, the voice is fucking amazing. I mean, she sounds yeah. incredible. Such gusto, so earnest. And the personality is so undeniable, even on these sort of like mediocre country records. But when I'm sitting alone at a table for two, cause he's already out on the phone. I think about something that my mama used to say to me. You gotta dance with the one that brought you. Stay with the one that wants you. The one who's gonna love you when all of the others go home. Honestly, there's a little bit of a quality to it that I think does set it apart even more from the other albums where it's like kind of lonely. Like there's sort of a Mm. lonesome quality to a lot of the tracks, which is not even in... Shania's sad ballads, anything I would use to describe her music. But, Mm. you know, I think it does remind me of less popular country artists around this time. Like Susie Boggess is like a good example of someone who is a less famous version of Shania.
Kelly mm. Willis, like some of these artists that people don't know today, but they have a very soft, far away quality to the music, but it's still country, right? They still have these like narrative arcs to the songs that are sometimes more complex than like classic pop, right? They have specificity yes. to them. Yeah. Who are the dominant country, specifically females of this period? I mean, that's, I think, something that's so unique to Shania is she brings that in and she's been credited with this for so long she brings in women back to country or whatever and you know she talks about this too when she comes on the scene country's not in like a fallow period necessarily but mm. right when she kind of hits that's when garth is sort of coming up and that's when toby keith is kind of, like that's kind of when you start to get the names of people who only recently have started fading away from our right. headlines i would say this few years and again it's not a long period of time yeah. it's, it's a short period of time but yeah. We're kind of at the beginning arc of what is going to be like a massive period for country Wave. music. Gotcha. So this record is a flop. I mean, in the modern sense of the word, it goes nowhere. There's no real hits from it, as I understand it. Yeah, but it's interesting because I think you see in it some glints of what is to come. I mean, like Let's Sean Penn directs one of her music videos, which is oh, crazy. Oh, whoa, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, and then what's also interesting that I think is maybe bigger than that, just like funny factoid is yeah. the video for What Made You Say That, the main single off this album, she has the tiniest little strip of midriff showing in it. Ooh, it's a presaging midriff. First CMT will not play the video. Oh. They think it's too scandalous, which is interesting. so, so telling of where her career is about to go, where country is about to go, where we are in terms of the kind of conservativeness of country music at this point. And she's like, what are you talking about? This is nuts. <laughs> well, it's, it speaks to her outsider-ness because she's actually not a country insider. So that's actually part of what maybe allows the iconoclasm to just naturally occur. She's not necessarily steeped in these traditions in the sense that someone who grew up in it would be. So obviously the big inflection point that occurs after this first album is Shania Twain is linked up with Mutt Lang. Now, I do feel like we need to take a bit of a step back here and discuss Mutt Lang because if we're talking about Shania Twain's massive run of success through these next three albums, it's impossible to parse that apart from her primary creative partner and her life partner at that time, the yeah. producer Mutt Lang. So who is Mutt Lang prior to meeting Shania and what type of music does superstar producer Mutt Lang produce like in the 70s and 80s? Yeah, I mean, Mutt is ACDC, like back yes. in black, like that mm -hmm. is him kind of in a nutshell. <laughs> To me, when I was thinking back about Mutt, there's no more superlative Mutt Lang song than Pour Some Sugar On Me, the Def Leppard yeah. song. Obviously one of the great arena rock songs of that period. And I think something that presages quite a bit of the production elements that you will see him bring into Shania's music, that sort of stomping queen, we will rock you style drum programming.
that feels like a huge signature of Mutz that he brings into his work with Shania. I mean, there's so much about them coming together to this kind of magical alchemy and like thinking about them never meeting is pretty funny. It's like yeah. not to be melodramatic, but would like truly change the course of music history probably. It's one of the superlative producer songwriter singer star relationships in popular music history yeah he basically gets her record likes it or like likes enough of it that he's like something's unique about this but he's never done country before right no and you know eventually he'll go on to work with the course he does breathless which is like such a fucking good song (laughs) and of course lady gaga's you and i all over by maroon five later you look at his work the and classic like, oh i get it but prior to meeting her he has more of a defined sort of type of artisan sound that he works with i mean yes. i feel like yes. he's really known as you said acdc def leppard the cars like there's like a very yeah. specific humongous arena rock style to his production yeah that also has real specific technicality to it a lot of layering. I mean, he's basically known as an insane perfectionist. Their meet cute is wild. Like, he gets this record. He's like, I like it. He calls her up. They talk on the phone for weeks or something or months. Yeah. Uh-huh. They finally meet. She thinks he's going to be an old, gray-haired, kind of chunky guy. Yeah. And then it's like this tall, curly, blonde hair South African dude. <laughs> and he's 17 years older than her, but not old. Right. And... At this point, because they've been talking on the phone, she feels like she can really trust him. And I think this kind of goes back to her thing before with all the people she was writing with in Nashville, where she was like, I don't know them. How am I supposed to work on music with them? Right, right. And at the time they finally meet, she's like, okay... I really know this person doesn't even know he's like a big producer knows almost nothing about him, which is pretty crazy. And their relationship again, like starts just as two extreme music lovers Mm. coming together. They end up working on all these songs before they tell the label, they're just working together. And then the label comes to her and is like, okay, we have to start talking about your new album. And she's like, don't be mad. I actually, (laughs) I've basically written it all. How do you understand her vision for how she wants to change her music either prior to meeting Mutt or because of meeting Mutt? Does she get some sort of aha moment where she's like, okay, that was my first album and like, here's where I need to go on the second album. Like, I want this to be this massive sounding maximalist crossover multi-genre melting pot sound. Or does that occur post meeting Mutt? I mean, she straight up says she wanted to be marketed as a pop star. Like she really thinks of herself as across all boundaries and she just wants to make the music she thinks sounds good. Yeah. She doesn't want it to be labeled as anything. She just wants to do whatever feels like instinctual to her. Uh-huh. Which is obviously like very counter to the marketing department of any record label. Sure, <laughs> sure. Like, we need to like figure out what this is and how we're gonna sell yeah. it to people. Yeah. So they start without the label's knowledge, obviously working on tonight's second record, which is called The Woman in Me. And when does the romantic element of the relationship come to full fruition? Is that like right at the get-go? Yeah, I mean, they got married six months after meeting, which is truly <laughs> wild. I know, I, I feel like I keep saying this, but like no, that is everything wild. about her life is just like hyperdrive kind of. It like, is. What is, is happening? <laughs> yeah, she flies by the seat of her pants. You know, there's something about the, the joie de vivre that she brings to her music that is personified in that decision. <laughs> 
how would you describe the sound that they land on on the woman in me? What in particular are the elements that are coming together here to create this sound? I think there is kind of like a wink at the listener that Shania does in all of her music from here on out that is really what I would personify as special to her. Mm. She's always kind of like, <laughs> yeah, totally. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge to you. Mm-hmm. There's a huge humor line through everything, but mm. she really has a good sense of humor, obviously. And that's both at like the listener and that's also at the tropes of the time. Mm. You know, when you listen to this album, I mean, who's better of your boots been under? That's classic country vibes, right? Like, yes, right. Nothing about it is necessary particularly new but she and Mutt took everything kind of like turned it up to 11 yeah Bed of Your Boots Been Under is one of the more interesting selections we could talk about here because that to me struck me as a more conventional country song. I mean, you can tell just from the title, the referencing of boots <laughs> is an immediate nod at country. Yeah. But there's something about the way that the song is produced that is so crystalline and so maximalized that it feels less sort of folksy than you might expect from a country record or something like that. Yeah, and there's also just tempo-wise, like a real yeah speed she keeps it quick which is also at this point not common in the genre yeah we have to talk about any man of mine which is the superlative song from this record which is the fusion of all of their different things together because the song almost exists in two parts you've got the sort of almost pour some sugar on me sounding stomping (laughs) arena rock drum production And then it shifts into this fiddly country chorus. Which is like such a funny little amazing combination. Well, this is like such a good example of Shania knowing more than the label knowing because she wanted that to be the first single. And they were like, no, we have to put out what she refers to as boots because that's the more country song. So we have to put boots out as the first single. And she was like extremely justified when any man of mine fully hits and does super well because she's like, okay, this is a taste of what Mutt and I can really do together. To me, this is the Big Bang song of the Mutt yeah. collaboration. Yeah. And it does feel unclassifiable. It is a country song, and yet it's so many other things as well. Most notably, obviously, Mutt's full-scale arena rock production. I also feel like this song is an important crystallization of the Shania persona. There were so many funny little lines that I enjoy on it, like, I can be late for a date, that's fine, but he better be. <laughs> <laughs> on time is she's at once 
got like a feminist edge to her or like a 90s feminist edge to her, but also feels traditional at the same time. It's a really interesting line she walks because a lot of her songs are about kind of heteronormative marriage, love between a man and a woman lasting for all of lifetime, whatever, like all that boring shit. And yet she also kind of has this like (laughs) just a sort of tinge or like an edge. And I know she doesn't like to identify herself as a feminist, but she has this edge of kind of 90s feminism of like, I'm the one in charge still though. Like I'm the, you know, I'm not submissive to my husband even as we exist in this like colonial heteronormative relationship yeah not to psychoanalyze her too much but i really (laughs) feel like her growing up in the way that she did where in canada they have this program where they replant all the trees that they cut down and that's the business that her family ends up doing yeah and so she spends whole summers in the backwoods of canada like not showering planting trees and it's like that's why she was kind of able to personify what you're describing is like this I can do anything a man can do kind of energy because she really felt it. Like she She really really was was like, I'm sexy, but I'm also down to chill in this way that she managed to hold on to that didn't become a performance for men, it became something that women could identify with. Totally. The whole perspective of the song of her sort of being like, this is how you have to be to be with me is an appealing vibe within traditional, I guess, country gender roles. The piece de resistance of the genre melding on this song is the Blondie-esque rapture rap that sort of occurs <laughs> at the end of it. This is fucking incredible. The way that they were able to pull these elements together shouldn't necessarily make a lot of sense together. It's just masterful and so much fun and so funny. I mean, listening to her rap in the style of Debbie Harry on this country stomping arena rock song, it was just glorious. It's just such a testament to experimentation and to busting down convention. Yeah, I think it's definitely here where you really start to see the glimmers and her melding some of like the real greats in the genre like Patsy Cline Mm. I hear in this early records like Melissa Etheridge vibes there's a real ability to take that and move it into the pop space that is Mm. pretty fascinating to me a track like If You're Not In It For Love to me really sounds like Bonnie Raitt There's just a lot of homage here as she's like pushing it forward to do totally new things. On that song I wrote, this sort of 90 feminist vibe, I do my own thing, babe, I'm not worried about you. (laughs) Like that feels like it (laughs) really sort of personifies like her persona that she develops on this record. Because that was my question for you is like, we've talked a little bit about this, but there's that sort of that don't impress me much energy about Shania's persona. Like she has this very specific milieu and energy about her that obviously obviously is incredibly appealing to like women in particular at this moment. And like, I'm just curious if we could zero in on what the elements of that are. We've talked about some of them, but if we could talk a little bit more about it. I think it's like, she's her own person and that person is complicated. She's not saying 
you have to not date men. She's not saying that you have to like ball your eyes out over men. Like she's right. kind of saying in a way, like you can have it all, which isn't necessarily true, but right. then <laughs> she'll also say like, maybe not forever. Like maybe just for right now. So what, what's really funny is you have this song, if you're not in it for love, which has that very sort of like, I'm not worried about you energy. And the next song is called the woman in me needs the man in you. I feel like these two songs encapsulate the two sides of Shania's persona, which is on the one hand, kind of like an F you, I'm an independent woman. And then also this kind of woman of traditional gender politics, who's very much like, I need a man to be yeah. a man and I'm going to be the woman, the and traditional I think woman. it speaks to like her resistance to like be pegged into anything. Right. Like she yeah. really bristled at that from a yeah. very early age. She was like, I want to be what I want to be and don't tell me what to do. I'll be nice. Yeah. Ultimately, it's not going to work well for you. Yeah. Like I'll get my way. And the other thing that I think we have to highlight here is she's a hell of a lot of fun. Like she is yes. so oh my much God. fun. Every minute you can just sense the joy that she's bringing to this and you just want to fucking hang out with her like when you're listening to yeah. this it's like you would be a fun night out i feel like she's the type of girl that would pick you up off the floor and be like bitch get in the car like we are going to like <laughs> fucking tear it up and like forget about our problems and that really is a huge aspect of the persona that i think is very appealing yeah and I think I really like about it is she said before, like you said, she writes for everyone. Yeah. But I think there's something unique about that in that the gaze is still for women. I don't know totally. if she would say that, but in her music, I hear this is for women first. A hundred percent. It reminds me of Beyonce. Beyonce, I think, especially early in her career, but I think to this day, takes her role as somebody that empowers women, speaks to women, makes women feel a certain way very seriously. And I think sees herself in similarly as like, especially early in her career, as writing songs that felt broadly uplifting and empowering to women and I see yeah. a lot of parallels between her approach totally. and his approach yeah very interesting so this record is a monumental success it is huge in the country world I think there was like something like five or six country number one hits on this album yeah. it sold 14 million records how is this record perceived on various levels. I want to talk about a few of them. Let's start with country, Nashville. How is this record received in the Nashville community? I think it's like, okay, like, like what are you doing here? Right. You know, like with tentativeness, this is like the point at which she starts having super creative control over her music videos and right. like her aesthetic, which as we know is very specific. Let's <laughs> like, talk about no it. One... What is it exactly? I don't even know how to describe it. It's like she's wearing crazy things. <laughs> the midriff is out. Yeah. Loves the midriff, loves to pattern block, loves mm. to clash, mm -hmm. loves to like, I mean, this is like where the masculine and feminine come in. I'm wearing a men's shirt, but like yes. tiny little skirt. And she yeah. literally like talks about that in her songs. It's really funny. It speaks to that same dichotomy we were just talking about between the proto-feminist and then the sort of like the traditional. Yeah. But you know, she even says at this point, in her opinion, that country yeah. music is in a crisis. She's like radio 
is kind of the only way they're making money. They're obsessed with radio. Yeah. That's all they focus on. She and Mutt have much bigger visions for like what they can be doing outside of a pretty small niche of money making. I can't help but just feel like their status as outsiders, him being South African and also from the rock world and her being Canadian, creates a lot of the circumstances in which she can feel free to break a lot of these rules. Like she just doesn't feel beholden to some of these traditions in a way that really allowed her to throw them in the trash many of them nashville as i understand it was pissed as fuck about the sexual way that she was presenting herself in her videos or how they that they perceived as her using sex or using her body to i don't know express herself or market herself or whatever it was that was my understanding of like one of the main pushbacks of this era yeah and to her credit she kind of never plays their game like she doesn't make a big stink about it she's just like Mm -mm. you're wrong like yeah. <laughs> whatever well it's part of her carefree fun attitude it all lines up like the yeah. exact woman that you meet on these songs i feel like is born out in the way that she handles her career like she really is kind of like bitch i do my own thing i've got my own thing i do my own I have my own perspective on things and i don't really give a fuck about what you think about me and i'm not going to be tied down by what you are expecting a woman in my position to be doing and That is what allows a lot of the, as I said, the iconoclasm to come into play in her career. Yeah. Is this music popular outside of country? Not really yet. Like in that, Who's Bed of Your Boots Been Under is kitschy and kind of fun. Like people know about it, but it's not crossing over in the way that her later work would. So she and Mutt move on after the massive success to creating her third record, the iconic come on over one of the most successful albums to ever be released and made i believe it is still the number 16th biggest selling album in history what do you understand as their ambitions now that they've gotten a taste of humongous success like what do you think that they're thinking what are the ambitions in terms of moving into this record i mean she and him are basically like okay this is when we can do what we really want to do and they set up something that they'll do for the next two albums which is literally get ahead of themselves and produce multiple versions of albums dependent on market which is Mm -hmm. like again i don't want to be superlative or overly dramatic but it's like truly they just were so ahead of the game like they were like we're gonna produce this album we're gonna release the original country version and then we're gonna put out basically remixes of literally every song on the pop and international versions or whatever whatever that means (laughs) yeah (laughs) the first two singles though are kind of like not the most iconic of a batch of very iconic singles Mm -hmm. their love gets me every time and don't be stupid you know i still love you how would you describe these two songs and do they feel emblematic of what the sound of this record is to you so a thing i love about don't be stupid and i think i love overall in this album is she loves a fucking string instrument she cannot get enough (laughs) of a fiddle don't be stupid They sound so good. It makes classic country strings sound like you've never heard them before. It's yes. like this fresh, exciting, energetic. It makes me like want to sing on this podcast, which I'm not going to do. Do it. Do like, it. just like... Just like <laughs> 
it dopamine in your brain. Yes. And they did something with those sounds, which would normally have been, when I think of strings and pop, it's usually ballads, it's usually kind of big, sweeping, sad stuff. And she certainly does that at points, mm -hmm. but they use it on like the up-tempo hit in a way that I just can't get enough of. I feel like the use of the string section, the fiddles, the violin, et cetera, is one of the only traditional country elements, i.e. the only thing that's sort of tying them back to actually being country songs. Because many of these songs, in a way that even pushes further than The Woman in Me did, these are not even fully country totally. songs in a lot totally. of ways and the strings are kind of their way of keeping it there or at least keeping the illusion alive for anybody who needs them to and so don't be stupid is the second single the first single is called love gets me every time What are these songs about and how do they further the Shania persona or variety of personas we were highlighting on The Woman in Me? There's something that she's furthering here. Again, this every woman relatability, right? Yeah. Where she's kind of talking to herself a little bit always, yeah. where <laughs> so many pop songs and so many songs in general, I think, are talking to the person that they're missing or loving or whatever. And obviously yeah. she does that. Yeah. but. I always feel like when she is singing, she's always kind of talking to herself too. Mm -hmm. And there's something about it that I find so funny and like mm -hmm. cute. Talking to herself, but also talking to every woman or person on earth because the songs never feel personal. I mean, they do in that they obviously mean something to her, but there's also a broad quality to them where they're meant to speak to women yeah, writ large or she something. she picks specific lines that really ground it, like specific weird little things, but the overarching narrative- Right, is, is, is meant to be yeah. broad and appealing. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, even though I couldn't stop thinking about how clearly Taylor Swift, especially in her early couple of albums, was so influenced by all of this music. She's not like Taylor Swift where there's this massive impetus to detail her personal narrative in these songs. No, no. You would never in this record know who she was singing about. No. It's all in the service of the product and less in the service of sort of like a diaristic poetic sort of impetus like to yeah. share. They were really workshopping these to be both melodically, structurally, production-wise perfect and also to feel as broadly appealing as possible was the goal. Like if they needed to use personal experience to do that, they would. That was not the goal of these songs. So the song that really breaks Shania into pop is a ballad called You're Still the One, which might be, weirdly enough, given our previous conversation, one of the more personal songs on the album. I read that it's about the criticism that she received for marrying Mutt so fast. They're not specific enough that you couldn't relate your personal experiences to them, but you can see in the lyrics that she's speaking directly to critics, I think, specifically in Nashville, who thought she was making a mistake marrying him or marrying him just for clout or for producing and songwriting, whatever it was, who said that she was going to only be 
pursuing this relationship for short-lived ends. The lyrics are like, they said, I bet they'll never make it, but just look at us going strong. They said, I bet they'll never make it, but just look at us holding on. We're still together, still going strong. Still. So interestingly, for an artist who is not necessarily known for her personal songwriting, her most personal song becomes her biggest hit. I always find that a little bit ironic. And also, maybe this is a diss track. Maybe this is the stealthiest diss track of all time. And let's be honest, this is a pop ballad. Is this country in any notable ways? Like, I'm not totally sure. Debatable, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, only in that country also has songs like this. <laughs> yes, right, of course. This song you could picture being sung by like Celine Dion if with a slightly different arrangement. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it, it really feels so Celine-esque to me. Yeah, I mean, speaking of that, this next single is another similar sort of sweeping pop ballad, very Celine-esque, called From This Moment On. From This And then I think we should talk about the two superlative hits from this album, which are That Don't Impress Me Much and Man, I Feel Like a Woman. Are there two more iconic 90s hit records than these two songs? They're so good. I do That Don't Impress Me Much at karaoke all the time and nothing hits more. That don't impress me much. So you got the brains, but have you got the touch? Is that Don't Impress Me much like the Shania song, just like in terms of the attitude and the way that it presents itself? I think so. And in everything, it sums up the talking. Okay. So you're a rocket scientist. Yes. The one lines, mm -hmm. the specificity, and like the weird things that inspired her. I mean, there's lines that were inspired by her brother-in-law. You're one of those guys who likes to shine his machine. You make me take off my shoes before you let me get in. Apparently oh her brother-in-law, who she loves, but is obsessed with his car. So yeah, she like got so that from him. There's something very canonically Shania about the way this song is both kind of making fun of men and traditional masculine tropes, but kind of with an affectionate nod. Like, she still kind of loves it at the same time. And where else did she get some of these kind of hilarious zingers she drops from time to time? The Brad Pitt thing she said later, she ended up seeing those nude photos of him and we're kind of like, mm. what? Like, okay. I know those. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll write about this. Like, mm -hmm. Okay. So you're Brad Pitt. The other thing I was thinking about with this, with the persona, you know, we've got the fun, we've got the sort of like, eh, whatever, I don't give a fuck attitude. And also there's something kind of chill about her, not stressed. Yeah, it's like laissez-faire kind of, yeah. And then, of course, you've got Man, I Feel Like a Woman, which, let me tell you, I still play in pretty much every DJ set to this day, and people young and old 
cannot get enough of this fucking song. This is like one of the great sing-alongs in pop history for sure. Right from the get-go with the Let's Go Girls. Let's go, girls. This is like the best example, I think, of Shania's unwillingness to fall into masculine or feminine tropes. She will not be told what she's supposed to be. And it is like the perfect 90s feminist anthem. Just the whole concept that I can do anything a man would do. go out and do whatever you want and have a really fun time. There's no male gaze on you. You're with Mm -hmm. your friends. Everything is about embodying your femininity, but like for you, not for some guy. I always love that the song says the best thing about being a woman is the prerogative to have a little fun, which sounds like sort of a dumb line, but also kind of encapsulates the spirit of the song in the sense that the best thing about being a woman isn't that you can attract a man, it's that you can be free and have fun. That is really the spirit of this song, and I think the spirit of Shania's persona writ large. (laughs) When she starts it off as like, Let's go, girls. Let's go, girls. It's like, okay, we're like marching out on the town together. (laughs) Not to bring Beyonce up again, but it's a very, okay, ladies, let's get in formation. Mm -hmm. It's a little like your big sister who like knows something that you don't know and is giving you a little life lesson of some sort. Yeah. There is an energy to it that's like, oh, one of our girlfriends got broken up with and we have to cheer her up. But there's no man mentioned in it, right? Really. Except using the word man as just an exclamation. Yeah. Man, I feel like a woman. Yeah, as like a nod and a nudge to the listener. And then there's the video where she basically inverts the Robert Palmer video, which was him and a bunch of dead-eyed models playing instruments behind him. And in the most iconic, I think, Shania imagery of all time, it's her in like a tuxedo Mm. and a bunch of dead-eyed hot guys (laughs) standing behind her playing instruments. That was such a (laughs) genius video concept yeah she just really like has strong specific aesthetics and like knows what she wants and then the other thing that i think you were getting at earlier when we were talking about dolly parton which i think is so important here is that all of the looks and the way she presents herself in this era feel so important to the reason that these were such big pop hits in the video for that don't impress me much like what do you remember about that you remember her in this like leopard yeah outfit with the long coat dragging it through the desert and like like the hood, the, the leopard yeah. hood. But I think we also see here, like, again, not to overly psychoanalyze her, but I think yeah. in her pretty tough upbringing and working her way through, like, the early days in Nashville before she aligns with Mutt. But even after, she faced sexual advances. She right. kind of faced a lot of the very classic things that 
women who are even not trying to make it in music face. Right. And you see, at least I see in her music, a strong rebuttal and kind of like a fuck you mm. to those men that thought that they could do that to me. I really see that in her music. So come on over. Humongous success. As we said, one of the biggest records of all time. Does this sort of pave the way for any immediate other country stars to cross over into pop? Or is it still just so singular in its appeal? I certainly think... Faith Hill comes like right after mm, Shania Faith Hill. Yeah, and yeah. a lot of her big ballads become like pretty big pop hits. I'm not sure they would have hit the same way. She would have been kind of allowed to do some of that crossover if Shania hadn't happened. Leanne had her moment right after this, right? For sure, yeah. So Come On Over comes out in 97, is producing hits for a couple of years. And then Shania and Mutt take quite a bit of time to work on a follow-up, which turns out to be 2002's Up. It has a couple huge smashes that are kind of in the same vein as some of the songs that we heard on Come On Over and The Woman In Me. There's, of course, the title track, a signature kind of relentlessly cheery, super well-produced arena country pop stomper. Now, Up is a little bit nuts for a lot of reasons. One, obviously, because like some of the musical choices on it are a little crazy, which we're going to have to talk about. But also, the commercial ambitions kind of go into overdrive. Mutt and Shania released three separate versions of this album. One's called the Red Disc, which is the pop version. One is the Green Disc, which is the country version. And then one in the style of Indian, like, Bollywood music, which is the Blue Disc. So they're really, like, nakedly gunning for different markets commercially here in a way that's a little ick. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it. To me, I find this to be almost like a step too far into the pop perfection and appeal to everyone. Like, this record doesn't hit me nearly as hard as Come On Over does. How do you feel about Up? I think it's super fun. I do love it. Yeah. But it's a little almost too overproduced yes. for like what I think she's great at. I agree. There's some weird songs on here. Let's like, talk about them. We got to quickly talk about some of the weird songs on Up. Yeah, like Ka-Ching. Ka-Ching. What the, that is like one of the craziest songs I've ever heard in my life. All we ever want is more. A lot more than we had before. So take me to the It's like literally like a screed against capitalism. Okay. <laughs> does she or does she not sound like Katy Perry on that song? 
yeah, I guess there's some Katie to that, for sure. Because Katy Perry also likes to make weird socio-political statements in her pop songs yeah. also. Yeah. Witness vibes. And that yeah, is not a compliment. Then, like... It's so long, too, Kate. Like, it is so yeah. long. Like, I literally had to listen to this album in three sittings because I was like, this is 75. And then, you know, there's three different three versions. versions. I was like, what too. versions of this do I yeah. listen to? And the international yeah. versions are the green. I can't remember whether it's green or the red. Some of them sound fucking crazy, too. Yeah, that they were just like, oh, we'll just use, like, East Asian influences yes, and just, yeah. like, add some different instruments. Over the- it's like a little bit, in hindsight, like, what's happening yeah. the ambition and the ambition to be huge and appeal to everyone starts to flatten some of the personality and the music to me on this record in some places yeah but are they like endlessly catchy yes oh my god produced like yes i'm gonna get you good is such a good song that's a classic shania song It even has a nod to that, like, don't, 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 part of that don't impress me much at the end of the chorus. You know, and like the getcha, like it's yeah. you still got that country in there oh, a little for bit. sure. I think what's interesting with Up is that here you really see the cheesiness is maybe going too that's far what, that's what in I'm the cheesy saying. direction. That's what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, like it's just starting to like, okay, this is not as grounded and like fun. Yes. Tongue in cheek. It's like not really tongue in cheek anymore. That's what I'm saying. Like come on over like for all of its naked commercialism and all of its broadness. I never feel like icky about it in any sort of way. Like I get sort of bothered sometimes when pop records, I feel this way. I This is such a weird comparison to make, but I'm just going to go for it. I feel this way Mm -hmm. so much about a lot of Nicki Minaj's album music, which is like, this is thought out in a boardroom in a way that I Mm -hmm. can't, it's squelching the art aspect of it. Like, mm-hmm. I get that all pop is commercialism, but like, there's a really delicate line that you can walk on that. And I think Come On Over walks that line beautifully, which is that like, mm-hmm. you never feel like icky listening to it. And I'm not saying I feel icky listening to Up. Up is a great album that has a lot of good songs on it, but there's something about where I sort of feel like the commercial goals are more foregrounded sometimes than the artistic ones totally and it's interesting too because at least and maybe this is where mutt comes in yeah maybe he was the more commercially minded i mean he must have been like they end up being insanely rich like they live in switzerland they have homes all over the world like (laughs) i don't think that drove her having enough money to never have to worry again certainly drove her but like I don't get the sense that she was like, okay, I need to sell a zillion records yeah, again. Yeah. So I wonder if he's the energy there. And we don't know because he doesn't talk about it. Ever, and so. also we don't know because this record is where Shania's essentially, I mean, we'll talk briefly for a second about it now, but this is where Shania's discography essentially comes to an end. I mean, Up is another huge success, not quite on the level of Come On Over, but I think any record coming off of Come On Over that's doing essentially the same thing is going to be successful. And then Shania basically stops making music. You touched a little bit on this at the beginning of our conversation, but can you just quickly bullet points walk us through like what the fuck goes on here? Like why would an artist at the peak of their success disappear? Yeah, so 
what essentially happens with Shania that she like explains later after the fact is she was totally burned out. Yeah. Again, she kind of was thrust into this role of the center stage. Yes. And I don't think she ever naturally felt in that place. Yeah. And, you know, she releases like these two huge albums. She's traveling, she's working, she's gunning. And she's just like, I need a break. Yeah. And so she goes to their mansion in Switzerland yeah. and she starts renovating houses and she's just like, I'm taking a time off or whatever. Yeah. And at this point, Mutt is still producing a ton of albums. He's traveling all the time. Mm -hmm. And she says later that this is when their relationship starts to unravel. Mm. They aren't really together very much. She did something really interesting, I think, with not living in the U.S. full time is that she never becomes a tabloid fixation. Mm. She's very removed. Like this is so unique to her and Mm -hmm. kind of genius. And I think speaks to the fact that she didn't really want to be famous in the way some people do. She talks about there she could go to the grocery store by herself Mm. and no one would bother her. Like she would forget that she was famous which Mm -hmm. is really interesting and specific Mm -hmm. and i think he as we know is a really private person too so he was like let's just be normal there together right and so the break began as just a work hiatus as a work hiatus and then what happens is through their separating relationship where she's like okay we're not communicating well you know we're not really in the place we used to be she confronts him about i I think we're drifting apart i want to work on our relationship she like buys all these self-help books and he's like, our marriage is over. <gasps> Two weeks later, she discovers that he's been having an affair with his longtime assistant, her best friend in Switzerland. Oh and she is fully loses it, yeah. obviously, as like anyone would. Yes. And is just deeply in sadness. And yes. like, this is a woman who like, they were pregnant at the yeah. same time. They raised their kids together. It's like, There's no way you can describe how close these two couples right. are. And so she is in extreme trauma mm-hmm. over this break. And something pretty interesting happens here where she basically loses her ability to sing. Right. And it's not physical, it's emotional. So it wasn't the Lyme disease. So I think the Lyme disease certainly happened and she wasn't feeling well, but at least in her book, she does not really talk about it. So what she ends up being diagnosed with, I believe is called dysphonia. And this really speaks to her early fears performing. When she gets stressed, her vocal cords just seize up Mm. and she can't sing. And so she stops being able to sing. And this is around the time that she ends up writing her memoir and then does this Oprah reality show on the own network about learning to sing again, facing her fears, like being back on the stage, and then also at the same time, falling in love with the husband of the woman <laughs> who cheated with Mutt on her. So they swap partners. I have lost my ability to express myself and my ability to sing. I've lost it. For some reason, I'm not comfortable singing in front of people anymore. I was feeling more pressure from my career the bigger it got. I felt the pressure to be better and better all the time. It just affected me. I was slowly losing my voice and slowly losing my confidence. Now, of course, my marriage was slowly breaking down, too. First, I found out that my marriage was over. And then the next day, I found out about the affair. It was a real death. I really lost my sense of trust, compassion, honesty, forget that. That's all gone, that's dead. I was really getting quite obsessive about my own pain, my struggle, and and I just had to snap out of it. Yet another so stage in like Shania's 
insane life. <laughs> that is the craziest story of all time. She both loses her partner and I think at this point had become like kind of isolated yeah. in a lot of ways right. from her family, from her friends, right. and her musical partner and the person she had made the best music and the only music she really loved of her career right. with. And I just cannot overstate what a unique and devastating thing that must be to have experienced. Then she finally puts together her last album, which like we could touch on very briefly, which is 2018's Now. How do you feel about Now? It's a pretty different experience than the Mutt albums. Her voice is radically different. The voice part doesn't really throw me as much. What really throws me about this record is it is not holistic right. the way the other three were. Mm -hmm. It sounds like she worked with a bunch of different producers, which she did. And she did. This most recent record is arguably much more specifically personal to her yes. than all the other previous ones. Like For sure. That's the big shift in approach. Yeah, you've got tracks like Poor Me, which is all about her divorce and yeah. being cheated on. Found it in his closet Right behind the lights I wish I never saw it The secret in his eyes Hold oh, me He never told me how long I'd be living in the dark No one turned the light on I fell and broke my heart and there's some interesting lyrical stuff going there. I don't love how the final products, No, they all just feel a little, right. something is not clicking. I agree with you. That's how I felt listening to it. I was like, there's good stuff here in the mix. And like, there's interesting potential pathways forward for her. But I don't feel a moment on this record where I'm like, aha, that's what a Shania record should sound like in 2022. Last question. How would you summarize Shania Twain's legacy? I just think she did something no one else has done or will maybe ever do again. Again, I don't want to feel like I sound like yeah. hyperbolic, but right. the wide influence she's had with such a small amount of work. Mm -hmm. When I was thinking about the people you've talked about on the show and like her peers, quote unquote, nothing compares in the uniqueness of the experience that is her musical journey. There's something about the non-fealty to genre and the desire and impetus to break the rules and to do her own thing against the backdrop of a world of music that is so rules-oriented and so tradition-oriented and the way that she was able to spin that into such great success, I feel like is a wonderful blueprint. Like, if you are an aspiring pop star, you should do more what she does and less of what some of these other girls are up to because it really is mm -hmm. a testament to, like, if you are willing to take the risks to, like, carve your own path through these things, like, you never know what you could come up with. And I know that that sounds sort of cliche or whatever, but I really do think that that's like what her career is a testament to and that's why people look up to her so much is because she broke the rules, she did her own thing, and it was so monumentally successful and transformative and I think that that's like why all of these young stars cite her as an influence, more so than maybe just the sound of her music itself. It's really what she did and the risks that she took. So let's talk about the Pantheon. I mean, I can give my thoughts first if you want me to. 
<laughs> I always like to give my distinguished guest the opportunity to talk first before I say it. No, mm-hmm. I'm just kidding. Thinking about this, I had a really hard time because I was like looking at the roles mm-hmm. and she kind of technically could fit across at least three, which is that doesn't work that way. And it doesn't usually happen. Yeah, it doesn't happen to me. Again, she's like icon status. Yeah. But it, there's not enough there no. for her actually to be icon status. I, I have to if, reject Again, that. like, right, exactly. It's like she changed music in this huge mm-hmm. way, but not everybody knows her. Mm. So my feeling is that she's tier two, even though she doesn't hit some of the key stuff, just in terms of the impact of the work that she did put out. But... I understand that she doesn't hit all of it. And if you don't feel the same way, I totally understand. (laughs) I'm thinking. I'm with you. I I definitely think it's we're talking of a cuspy three to two situation, which is, as you point out, pretty unique given that she has so little output. Yeah. I'm trying to think it through. And I think obviously what I usually do, which is helpful, is just read some of these out. So that's what I'm going to do. Tier two requirements are highly relevant, producing numerous, say at least 15 genuine hit songs over a decade. Many of which are highly recognizable by audiences who did not grow up with them. Here's my thing on this. If you did not grow up and weren't our age or of music consumption age in the mid to late 90s and early 2000s, what Shania Twain songs come on when you hear them? What what are you hearing? Like, to me, I think it's basically, man, I feel like a woman is the one. Yeah. Maybe don't impress me much much, and you're still the one right behind it. I mean, yeah, I think people are still, you're still the wanting at weddings and probably yeah. all to the yeah. end of I, time. I'd buy that people who didn't grow up with her would recognize those. Like Definitely Man, I Feel Like a Woman. I mean, Man, I Feel Like a Woman almost feels like it stands in a class of its own in terms of just like, that song has transcended time artists. That's like an American songbooky kind of song to me at this point. So I'm not sure th- about that one. Can be referred to mononymously and casual pop fans know what you're referring to. I'd say, yes, she does hit that criteria. Yes. At least one musical era that shifted or defined a certain era in pop absolutely generation defining absolutely at least one successful reinvention music overhaul i don't think i really see that because i'm thinking the first album didn't establish her to the point where like she would have had an image overhaul like in the way that i'm trying to posit it here like it's Mm -hmm. like that references to me like okay everyone knew you as this one thing and then you turned into Mm, this other thing and then everyone still liked that you know what i mean so that is one of the things that got cut short because i'm sure that would have had to have happened at a certain point had she been releasing music consistently between 2002 and 2018 or whatever the hell so Mm-hmm. multimedia moments that defined an era absolutely yes could still tour an arena even if she's significantly past her peak arena you think she could do an arena tour yeah i mean i saw her at madison square garden like not that long ago yeah okay so. yeah that's and, true. and she you know going skipping down a little like she had the vegas residency vegas residency she's got that yeah yeah i can see set yeah. in stone for sure release new music mm-hmm. now and it would be a highly covered story that was a pretty big story when she released new music and not yeah not commercial i think success but yes i think people are always interested mm-hmm. in like what it's gonna be she did headline the super bowl already also yes I, I find this tough too but i've gotta say that i still would argue that she's top of tier three Mm-hmm. only because of the lack of output and like the fact that she didn't have a chance to live into some of these tropes more clearly. But I don't know. I mean, I'm always willing to like give it up to the je ne sais quoi and say like, <laughs> well, but like whatever. I am, I am. I, I really do. I don't want to, I don't get I stuck totally in the I totally agree rules. that she bridges. Like Shania, I do not want to get stuck <laughs> 
in tradition. No, I totally agree that she bridges the two categories. And I think that's why I love her so much because it's like she kind of did do something so specific and weird that like it's hard to fit her into these a little bit. It, it is, it is. If you didn't think about it, you'd think she had more. You just say Shania Twain, you haven't studied up on this really. I think people will be surprised to hear that she's had so little music. Like I think that she's yes. had so few albums. My point is she looms larger than the discography would suggest. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think 3A is fair. I I yeah. want I, I, I want I, I want a gun for her for tier two. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's just because I stand I feel my the, girl. the tension. <laughs> yeah. I feel the tension, but I think ultimately I've got to try to convince you to put her in three. Because oh no no no, you're the arbiter. I I'm just here. I to, I know I know, but I I really value your input. I value your input, but I think that's just where my gut feeling is. And I think it's for the reasons that we laid out. But, you know, that's great. I mean, I don't, you know, she's like, that doesn't diminish anything about her. No. Work and no, and it's like, what's interesting about her, too, is it's like, if this was just a country tier, like a yeah. tiered system, oh, she would be, be yeah, she yeah. would be icon. Yeah. So that's like yeah. what's really yeah. interesting about it. Even with her crossover, she is in that genre, still a huge star. A hundred percent. All right. So you've made it to the end, if you can even believe wow. it. What's an underrated Shania song, something we haven't talked about yet that we could send the podcast out on? I don't think it's underrated necessarily, but my favorite when I was little was Honey, I'm Home off of Come On Over. Because of Man, I Feel Like a Woman, it doesn't get as much attention necessarily, but mm-hmm. it's so cute and like kitschy and Shania and it just always makes me laugh and smile. And is it Honey, exclamation point, I'm home? Nope. It's just honey, comma. Just honey, I'm home. All right. Unfortunately. (laughs) She just breaks our expectations once again. All right. Anyway, here's honey, I'm home. Kate Drees, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you for having me. This job ain't worth the pay. Can't wait till the end of the day. All right, there you have it. Pop Pantheon, Shania Twain, a tier three superstar. The judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you so much to the incredible Kate Drees for being such a fantastic guest. Get on social media and share the podcast and win your chance to pick an episode. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod on both Instagram and Twitter and me at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V. Get on the Discord. Check out the Spotify playlist all in the show notes of the episode. And until next week you guys have a wonderful life bye bye i cursed out loud cause it hurt like hell it's jobs of pain it's so mundane it sure don't stimulate my brain oh.